All right. Whenever you are ready, sir. Oh, I'm ready. I got stuff to say about this thing. Oh, do you? I do. Hot Rod Girl, the drama of growing youngsters. Like pretty Lori Nelson, she loves past cars, but wants to be sure about love. Don't ever shut me out again. Chuck Connors, a cop young enough to want to help Hot Rodders. John Smith, who likes to pep up racing motors. Mark Andrews, a newcomer, bringing new thrills and new danger. I got a feeling you'll be hearing from me very soon. I'm going out and don't try to stop me. Don't get in my way. Here's excitement that hits hard, packed with the dangerous thrills of hot-blooded youngsters showing off to hot rod girls. Like Roxanne Arlen, named by newspaperman The Wiggle, a thrill chaser who never stops. Chicken Race, the Russian roulette of the rock and roll set. You'll know the tops in thrills when you see Hot Rod Girl. And welcome to the Slumgullion, America's only podcast. Sorry. I am half your host, Scott. The other half of the host is Jeff. Hello, Jeff. How are you feeling? I am about half of a man today. Okay. Both metaphorically and literally. Yes, I was thinking that works on two levels. Nicely done. Jeff is determined to find some company for his misery. And that's the theme of today's show. No, I have removed Scott's gallbladder. (laughs) And he's just kicking it like a hacky sack down the gutter. We're doing a low-budget, no-star, no-real-name, no-real-reputation. Wait, 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 There are stars in this movie. Do you really there want to... There are two is, stars is in that, this movie. Is that how you want to describe these two people? Really? Stars? One of them, One of them, yes. All right. One what, what of them was the star of a long-running TV show. His name is immediately recognizable. So I will grant you that. There's a star. There's a starlet. There's some sputtering sparklers in the cast. By Why? the way, this is a UMC episode, in case you were wondering. Right. We're not... You know what? We are going to talk a little bit, because I have completely neglected to wish you a happy uh, Star Trek day. Oh, for the love of God. Yes. Uh, on this day, September 8th in, uh, what was it, 19... I don't care. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't. I just wanted to wish it to the one person who would give me the grumpiest response. Although I will say, I will say, I did watch in honorance of um, Star Trek Day, and given the fact that Star Trek did give me one of my favorite TV shows, Deep Space Nine, I watched the new trailer for season three of Discovery. Oh, there's, oh I haven't seen that. Yeah, a brand new trailer dropped today for Star Trek Day. And um, I, I, I got to say, I, I said it way, way, way back in the day. I will say it again. Setting it 900 years in the future is the best thing the show could have possibly done as far as I'm concerned. It's a batshit insane idea that allows them 
and excuses them for going anywhere and doing anything. And, and I, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant conceit for Star Trek. I think they've, they've done Discovery as far as Discovery. I My relationship with Discovery has been rough, as you well know. But like this is the first time that I'm going, I really kind of want to watch season three. Oh, I definitely want to watch season three after that. Because if for no other reason that them boosting the cast... 900 years into the future was such an elegant middle finger, such a winking, smirking, tittering fuck you to all the fanboys who complained. And and we were among them that we were tired of plumbing the 60s, the TOS, the, the original series era, and that we wanted to move forward into the future because after all, it's science fiction. This, on the other hand, is a nice way to say Shut up, fans! And given that, from what I know of people who work in the genre, they they constantly want to say shut up, fans. So when they say it in a nice way, I feel we should take a moment and salute them for it. So, salute. And also, we're now, I think, five episodes into Lower Decks, and it is is constantly entertaining. Yeah, I gotta catch up on that. I have not. Uh, It's, they, yeah, it's, you do, you do, you do, (laughs) especially... Well, since Harley Quinn is on, it's it's it, God knows when it's coming back. If it's coming back, at least right. we have good animation while we're waiting for new Rick and Morty. Right, exactly. But anyway, we were talking about a movie. Yes, so we are doing that. We haven't even ta- mentioned the title yet. It's it, it's a uh, automotive chick. <laughs> it's not, but automotive oh, oh, chick. No, car babe, car babe, car babe. You know, neither no. of those are true. Both are more accurate. Um. Um. Hot Rod Girl. That's right. That's what it was. No, that's not even close to true. But that that is the title. Yes. It is Hot Rod Girl. Ha, I knew I was right. And you at home might be asking, why are they doing this moldy, bottom-of-the-bill programmer plucked from the screen of some random Mid-South drive-in? And that's I will a, tell you why. The, no, you are not entitled to answer this question. Why? Because, it because was I'm asked, the one that picked it. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. Because why you pick this is a very good question. It, it, it's, it's a smart question. It's a question I applaud. Uh, I just can't answer it other than to say that for some unfathomable reason, Jeff really wanted to do this one. And in his delicate condition, I can deny him nothing. So actually, I realized that by describing Jeff's delicate condition that way, I've, I've confused some members of the audience who now believe Jeff is drunk. Like, I was going to say, I, I, I don't have the vapors. I have cancer. It's a little right. bit of a difference there. <laughs> right, right. You're not Jackie Gleason in Papa's delicate condition. Or I, I, the other possibility is, is uh, uh, Jeff's pregnant. And, and I can only hope to clear this up by stating categorically that uh, one of those uh, things is not true. Well, I have missed my period, so. I will say no more. Understood. So, yeah, we're talking about drag strip woman. <laughs> uh just just to let everyone else in on the joke, in Hot Rod Girl, uh, there is no actual Hot Rod Girl. There is a girl who drives a, a car. Once. 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 Over the opening credits. It could be more like B-roll girl. Stock yes. footage girl. Caught while running a quick errand girl. Because uh, then she becomes support girl. Yes, Exactly. Uh, but let's get into it. Hot Rod Girl was brought to us by Nasarema Productions. Nasarema, of course, is that cold cream your mom would put on your back when you got sunburned. Actually, you know what? Maybe Nasarema is the San Francisco treat. My notes are not very clear. Uh, and where they are, they're, they're not accurate. 
It fits. So, I mean, that works. So, I just want to go on record as saying the reason why I picked this movie is because of the two, quote unquote, as you put it, stars. Um, this movie features, in addition to lots of people I have never heard of, both Chuck Connors and in his first film appearance, it is his first film, by the way, Frank Gorshin. Yep. Giving a performance that makes you astonished and a little sad that he uh, made a second film. <laughs> oh yeah riddle me this when never mind I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh the film was released in 1956 on a double bill with girls in prison and if you were a teenage boy in 1956 and you had a couple of bucks to spare for the uh, snack bar and a ticket at the drive-in and you had a decent car you were going to get a boner that night just reading the titles off the posters there was a boner in your future Sadly, there was no satisfaction in your future, but we'll get to that. Now, the cast, the mighty star-studded cast of thousands that Jeff mentioned, is headed by, going by order of precedence in the credits, Lori Nelson. As I believe the titular direct uh, hot rod. Yes, she, she is the eponymous character. Mystery Science Theater 3000 fans will recognize her as the seafood fucking pervert in Revenge of the Creature. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and as one half of a traveling delinquent team of nudists with Mamie Van Doren in Untamed Youth. All right. She was the practical sister. As Jeff says, the film also stars Chuck Connors of TV's Rifleman fame, Frank Gorshin, the Riddler from the 66 Batman TV series, who in this film plays a Bowery boy inexplicably marooned in the San Fernando Valley. Named Flattop. Named Flattop, who copes with the constant stress of his social displacement by walking around with his hands clutched tightly in his armpits. An odd acting choice, but one he fearlessly commits to. Rounding out the cast is Dabs Greer from everything. Oh, Carolyn Kearney in a supporting role. MST3K fans will remember Carolyn as Jessica, the spooky, judgmental water witch from The Thing That Couldn't Die who used a dowsing rod to find water on her aunt's dude ranch. That's and, right. Right. And uh, who spent the... You're entire... all horrible, and I hope a tree falls on you. And you all have snacks. Uh, <laughs> also, she also spends the entire film telling us that she did not want to abuse her power to find disturbing things buried on the ranch. And she says this as she methodically combs the ranch with a forked stick looking for disturbing things and finding them. She found shit. They found shit, but they, she was one half of probably the best lesbian scene to ever happen on MST3K. That is very true, and that's saying a lot. That is saying a lot, because a lot of people who know their film is going south will toss in a little sex just to give the ticket buyers enough for their buck that they won't egg the box office after the film. And the lead hunk is played by John Smith. Ha ha ha. If the name doesn't tell you anything, you'll recognize the face from a million TV westerns, including Laramie, where I believe he was a regular. John Smith was born Robert Errol Van Orden. According to IMDb, his agent, Henry Wilson, who also gave Tab Hunter and Rock Hudson their names, changed Van Orden's name to John Smith because he was having a really off day. That had to be the nadir. Nobody got a worse name than John Smith. It's sad, but uh, look, they're, they're not all going to be winners. Someday you get a manly, effervescent name like Tab. Dudley, or, Dudley Manlove. Right, or Rock. Some days you get a name that makes motel clerks look at you all flinty-eyed and skeptical. Dudley yes. Manlove. Who I bet never has trouble checking into motels. I think, oh. 
The script was written by Joseph McGreevy, whose name makes him sound like the first runner-up in the 1946 Bedford Falls Miss Potter pageant, which is an important position because in the event the winner of the Miss Potter pageant cannot fulfill her duties of destroying the building alone, the first runner-up will be crowned. Joe's a veteran TV scribe whose oeuvre goes back to the dawn of the medium, featuring such powerhouse titles of the golden age as Studio One, the Ford Television Theater, and Schlitz Playhouse. Hell yeah. Yeah. His IMDb page is also littered with credits for every famously crappy series of the 1960s from Gidget to The Flying Nun. Basically anything starring Sally Fields before we liked her, we really liked her. Did we ever like her, really like her? I never did. No, but... Um, no, okay. I liked her, really liked her in Soap Dish. Yes, that was, that was a brilliantly fearless, neurotic performance. And I, I have to give her credit for that. I remember um, losing my shit seeing it in the theater and hearing her say the phrase Gloria fucking Swanson. <laughs> well, well, worried a turban, yes. Just to hear Sally Field say the word fuck for some reason, that just struck me with tremendous glee in the theater that day. Oh, yeah, that show left no laughs on the table. If they were going to get Jeff in Ohio to titter because Sally Field said a curse... They were going to do it. That movie is just nothing but nonstop gags, and I love it and respect it. This movie, however. Yeah, this movie. So McGreevy, the, this this got the McGreevy touch, the same touch that touched I Dream of Jeannie, Here Come the Brides, Family Affair, and Mayberry RFD. So in other words, a bad touch. Yes. That is a lot of guilt for one man to carry. But you know what? Let's accentuate the positive, because I imagine most people these days remember him primarily for his pioneering work in TV movies of the week, including the delightful romp Unabomber, The True Story, and Helen Keller, The Miracle Continues, in which Helen single-handedly beats the Soviet hockey team at the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid. The film was directed by Leslie H. Martinson. Who directed pretty much everything. He did. He's he that guy. He directed everything. Yep, his career also went back to the early days of television, with its various corporate-sponsored playhouses and theaters. Interestingly, Hot Rod Girl was only his second film, after The Atomic Kid, which starred Mickey Rooney. But it was made before his third film, Hot Rod Rumble. So he was really stretching himself as a director. Uh, his best and best-remembered films are probably PT-109 and Batman the Movie in 1966, yes. where he also worked with Frank Gorshin. But these were brief aberrations in a career that began and ended in TV, with stops along the way directing episodes of Love American Style, Manimal, and the syndicated sitcom Small Wonder. Now, by this point, you're feeling the kind of depression you never really felt until like the third segment of a VH1 Where Are They Now show. Everything's at its low point. Like the house was repossessed and the band's broken up and he's got debts from the IRS and he's drunk all the time. So you're waiting for the commercial break to end so you get that soul-restoring fourth segment where the guy gets clean, reunites with the band, maybe plays a reunion show at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, something like that. I got to tell you, Joe's life never really got much better. He continued making dross for the rest of his life, but I'm going to believe that he wanted to. His dream, his boyhood dream, was to grow up to make dross. And he did. He did that thing. He lived his best life making his worst movies. So I two, commend him for that. Two words, man. Two words. Hello, Larry. Hell, really? Okay. That's completely within his wheelhouse. 
Oh, now before anyone gets anxious, I would just like to assure you all that this film was made with the cooperation of the National Hot Rod Association and under the astute technical supervision of Fritz B. Burns of the San Fernando Drag Strip Burns. Okay, so we're, we're in good hands, people. We're safe and we can just sit back in the comfort of our own homes and watch the mayhem. Fuck all state, we've got Burns. Exactly. So you'll be shocked to find out that the movie starts with a drag race. A really genteel drag race. Uh, well, Lor- it's Lor- being it's being run by the drag strip girl, so naturally it has to be genteel. Right. And um, Laurie is driving what's like a 1955 T-Bird. It, it's a classic T-Bird, and it's her own car, which is why the first drag strip is so genteel and boring and careful, and everyone's driving super defensively, because they gave her this old beater Chevy to drive it in the opening scene. She offered to drive her own hot rod and they let her do it. So that's the first and last nice car we're going to see in the movie. Uh, she runs out one race and that's about it. That's as hot rod as the hot rod girl gets. In fact, it's one of the few times you actually see her in a car. Sometimes in the movie, you see her in the general vicinity of cars. She's car adjacent. A She's lot. Car- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. Were she a real estate ad, they would be stressing her car adjacents. Yeah, so the movie starts with Drag Race with Laurie driving. It's about half cheap-ass studio rear projection and about half real crowd reaction shots stolen from an actual drag race. The announcer does try to make the drag race itself, in which two people briefly drive in a straight line, then stop. Sound exciting. But the crowd, who didn't agree to be in this movie in the first place and doesn't seem to be aware that it is, declines to mime excitement. So... I don't know. I don't know what you did. I, I just felt bad, so I, I tried to get the wave going in my room when I was watching it. I did the wave, yes. You did, okay. So that and, and, I, and I drank beer and ate peanuts. Ah, you really committed. Now I got to salute you. There's just so much saluting going on. This is like an That's right. And I punched myself in the face drunkenly. <laughs> okay, Top Gun. And I played volleyball shirtless. <laughs> this one's for you, ladies. You know it. Now, if this were the 1980s, a real estate developer would be trying to buy the drag strip and turn it into a strip mall, and there would be hijinks and boobs. But it's the 1950s, so the police are trying to shut down the drag strip. And no boobs. And no boobs. Even though the drag strip is run by a cop, Chuck Connors, because they just don't understand, man. They don't get the kids today. I mean, Chuck Connors, who's who's old and square enough to wear a hat in every scene, runs the drag strip. think they trust him. He does convince his boss, the police captain, to give it a chance because, quote, the more kids at the strip, the fewer on the street, unquote. And for the benefit of those who did not memorize all the lyrics to Billy Joel's 1989 hit, We Didn't Start the Fire, in 1956, the authorities were very concerned about keeping kids off the street. Apparently, it was an environment hostile to all adolescent life, and police naturally wanted to keep kids away from streets the same way they'd want to keep vampires out of tanning beds, just to avoid the paperwork. But it does no good. While John Smith and his brother Steve are driving after the race to Yo-Yo's, Steve, who's behind the wheel of of the car that John built for him, gets teased and and heckled by this other hot rodder. And the guy chides him into street racing, which they don't do. They have forsworn that in exchange for the drag strip race. So this this is a major transgression right out of the gate. And wait, do we ever see that guy again? No, we never see that guy again. Right. Okay. So Steve gets ranked in a street racing when a flat top asshole in a tea bucket openly disrespects Steve's deuce. And and once that happens, a death has been ordered. And all you can do is wait to see if it arrives in 30 minutes or less. It does. There is a spectacular 
astonishing, amazingly gruesome crash off screen. And Steve dies, John cracks up, and the other guy hits and runs. And we never see him again. And we never see him again. Good job tying up that loose end. Yeah, so Steve dies in the inevitable wreck, but John survives. Basically, Steve, his kid brother, who had everything lived, was fridged to give Steve a reason to be a mopey asshole for the rest of the film. I was really kind of hoping that at the end we'd find out that it was that croc dude. <laughs> but sadly, twas not to be. This is just a death that serves no purpose, except, as you said, to, to be a fridge. Yeah, yeah, that's all it is. John survives with barely a scratch, so what an odd wreck that was. He's put on probation and loses his license, just like Dick Contino in Daddio. Same plot, but John, unlike Daddio, doesn't become a gang-busting singing waiter in a mobbed-up nightclub. Instead, he just lugubriously fixes cars in a, in a grim auto body shop and mopes around looking for excuses to avoid sex with his girlfriend. Although he does agree to appear in several boring arguments about why he's so boring. My favorite moment with him at one point, you know, uh, girlfriend, no longer hot rod girl, but, but, but arm, uh, says, uh, don't you want to see what's going on at this drag strip? And he just says, no, and walks away. Yeah. Laurie may have many fine qualities, but the ability to recognize PTSD is apparently not one of them. Uh, you were in a uh, horrible life-changing accident with your brother, who you were responsible for. Uh, he was underage, and he was driving only because you were in the car with him. And uh, now he's street meat. Let's go to the drag strip and watch people drive fast. What? So, kind of a disappointing uh, leading man so far. Uh, what are we going to do about that? I know! Leather dream boy Bronk Talbot roars into town in his hot rod and makes the comic relief girl squishy. But we can tell he's a vile person and we're supposed to loathe him because he pulls into Dabs Greer's garage and implies that automobile mechanics might exaggerate the trouble a car is having in order to inflate the bill for repairs. Flint McLarge Huge is a dick. He's a dick. He boldly unplugs the jukebox at Yo-Yo's and everybody instantly becomes deathly afraid of him for some reason. He demands that John Smith race him to prove he deserves to control the socket that supplies electricity to the music vending machine. But John can't drive, for he lacks a license. Bum, bum, bum. So Frank Gorshin steps in to understudy John by racing Bronk. And after listening to Gorshin's Cagney and several more of his lousy impressions in this movie, my only hope is that he's about to do a convincing impersonation of a crash test dummy. Sadly, that is not the case. Oh, no. So sad. For in this game of chicken, he plays chicken. Yes, they actually have a game of chicken. So while all the cool kids leave to have an action sequence, John stays behind with Yo-Yo, the malt shop owner, and has another boring conversation about why he's so boring. By the way, Yo-Yo is played by Fred, formerly Fritz Essler, and uh, judging by his performance, he appears to have gone to the Garden of Memory of the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California, yeah. dug, dug up the body of S.Z. Cuddle's Sockle, flayed the corpse, and is gadding about the malt shop, wearing the beloved character actor's skin and speaking in his cheesy Viennese accent. Kind of like that, that scene from uh, Men in Black. Yeah. Uh, that bug wears Vincent D'Onofrio. Except this is a little more chilling because both Fred and Cuddles were born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So this grave desecration smacks of a shocking shortage of hometown spirit. <laughs> were they at the drag strip when they did this? No, they were just out in some country road, right? Yeah. Okay. So they drive out to some place where they won't get hassled by the cops. Bronk challenges 
uh, Gorshin to a game of chicken. And in this scene, which I point out for the record in case the people who select candidates for the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award are listening, Frank officially becomes the sweatiest chicken in Hot Rod movie history. He's also a shameless trope tease, because this is the point in a Hot Rod movie where the comic relief dies for being so unfunny and to give the reluctant hero a motivation to climb back into his rod and drag like RuPaul. But Frank violates the B-movie social contract by not dying. As Jeff said, he had to be chicken, but he does have a personal epiphany and realizes that while he's not funny, he does have a promising future in cowardice. So how much motivation does this guy need? I mean, I guess Frank was figuring, okay, John's just moping. He's just talking about why he's boring. We got to get him into more traditional leading man activities. We fridged his brother. Didn't seem to work. Let's fridge his friend. That'll stick a pin in his ass and get him moving. But Frank queered that by chickening out. So this lack of motivation is going to have a severe effect on the story as it unspools before us. I'll just tell you right now. Oh, Chuck Connors hears about the chicken race and demands that everybody rat everybody out. But in a shocking twist, nobody rats anybody out. John doesn't even rat anybody out. John is is boring and rude. uh, But then he gets over his grief very suddenly. Not for any reason we could see. There's no motivating incident or abrupt realization He just turns the page in the script, and now he's not that sad about his mutilated brother anymore. He invites Lori back to his shabby furnished room, which even though she's his girlfriend, she's never seen before. She decides she'd like a cup of coffee and offers to make one in his depressing honeymooners-like kitchenette. John starts to apologize for being such a boring jerk. Progress. All right, I'm starting to get hopeful. But then he gets horny and tells her to leave, even before her coffee is done. So he's like double jerk now. Twice the jerk. As a leading man, this character has three principal traits. Number one, he doesn't do anything. Number two, he doesn't want you to do anything. Number three, he doesn't want anybody to ever want to do anything. It yeah. works for him. He gets through most of the film with that Without philosophy. doing anything. Not yes. doing anything. As she's leaving, Lori turns and says, Tomorrow's Sunday. Big day at the strip. How about it? John, who hasn't heard those words since he was an altar boy, agrees to strip with her for the Sabbath. Giggity. Progress. They share the most tentative, squeamish, unconvincing kiss since Michael Jackson's wedding to Lisa Marie Presley. Then she leaves and John pulls out the trophy his brother won the day he died and he fondly and weirdly blows on it. (laughs) Take that, Dr. Freud. Chuck takes Bronk down to the drag to do some Sunday stripping. But John who has regained the courage to look under hoods and do perfunctory pre-race inspections, progress, refuses to certify Bronx's car just because the engine isn't bolted down and stuff. But Bronx says he'll be back and I'll get you yet. But come on, he's already failed to remove Frank Gorshin from the film. Hasn't he done enough to us? So everything's right. Everything's cool. And back on his feet, he's, he's recovering. All is right in the universe at this point in the film, you know, except for John's dead mutilated brother. He and Laurie go on a pastoral drive through one of L.A.'s less scenic canyon roads. While Alexander Courage, by the way, we forgot to mention the score is furnished by Alexander Courage. Yep. Also, like Gorshin, with a uh, connection to Star Trek, the original series, because he wrote the theme music. So they're out on their pastoral drive. Alexander Courage cranks up the Star Trek love theme. You know the music. It's like so similar that you begin to wonder if this scene will end in a spectacular car crash or with an alien flower dousing Spock with pollen that makes him horny for Jill Ireland. The camera pulls out. We see that Bronk is following them. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh is right. 
And suddenly it's hot rear projection on rear projection action. And by action, we mean two cars defensively driving at moderate speeds and a lightly traveled stretch of Highway 101 while a bassoon noodles on the soundtrack. Thrill as the cars achieve speeds of three. (laughs) But there's threats and danger all around because suddenly a bicyclist appears on the road. It's a very young child or a very old man. It's difficult to tell because he's sort of dressed like Buster Brown, but wearing a Roman Catholic priest's hat. I believe in the trade. It's called a Capello Romano or a Saturno. In any case, it seems like an odd way to disguise the fact that it's not a kid. It's one of the stunt crew. But uh, there's a horrifying crash that takes place just off screen. I mean, it's like inches away. If only we had peripheral vision or the director had a budget, we could see it. Anyway, Lori's face comes to a full and complete stop against the dashboard. And John has killed another of his increasingly scarce loved ones. Got to the hospital. No, 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 no. Lori's okay. But John is under arrest for vehicular homicide. I mean, he just got his license back that very day. And already he went out and killed another person. According to Bronk. Remember, that's the damning testimony is from Bronk. Right. Bronk, who was chasing them, for some reason got to be the one who told the story about how John here drove over a, uh, a weirdly dressed child impersonating old man. Could this day get worse? The police department has also fired Chuck because his little his little side project has just driven all the kids insane and they're murdering people willy-nilly. But Bronk, as Jeff indicates, walks a free man, which is, I guess, better than him driving since his engine isn't bolted to his car. Okay, this, this seems like a bad point. This seems like the low point of the film where we should suck the last few sad-sounding drops from our soda. <laughs> Look at the bottom of the popcorn box. Uh, It's nothing but hulls and a few greasy pieces left that have been macerating in that fake butter for too long. I'm heartbroken. Yeah, yeah. But Chuck has a plan. He sits next to Bronk at the counter and vaguely implies he thinks Bronk hasn't been entirely forthcoming. Bronk rebukes him with the classic line. Now I get it. They tied the can to you because of your pigeon. Now you're looking for a patsy. I I don't know what that means, but according to the AFI, it's the 153rd most quoted movie lines by people with dementia. So Bronk breaks a milk bottle over Chuck's head because the script doesn't give him a good comeback. And he does it just as John and Lori arrive at Yo-Yo's. Bronk brandishes the broken bottle at John and declares his intention to leave. I I would have stood aside and let him go. I mean, this guy clearly is connected. He he, he can't be touched. He's been committing crimes ever since he uh, arrived on screen and he's never been held to account. So I don't have a lot of hope. But guess what, folks? With two minutes and 20 seconds left, we get the movie's first and only action sequence, a fist fight between John and Bronx stuntmen. And oh boy, is it action-packed. Oh yeah, and you can also see again another hallmark of Star Trek because these stunt guys look nothing like the guys they're stunting for. It's one of those kind of fights. You saw a lot of those in the 60s, especially a lot of them on TV. And uh, it's not a very exciting brawl, I'm going to be honest. But the way they bang around (laughs) making the walls of the malt shop flex and wobble did did awaken old yet pleasant memories of Dark Shadows. (laughs) Nah. And that's pretty much the end. I mean, uh, doesn't he get arrested or something? I, my yeah, Bronk gets arrested, gets knocked out, when, and then um, Chuck Connors wakes back up and says, Ooh, I have proof that you actually hit the kid. And so Bronk goes to jail for murder, and uh, what's-his-name and, his, and the titular drag strip girl have a very tepid kiss at the end. Okay, 
you're, you're going to confuse the audience because you keep saying drag strip girl when you mean hot rod girl and drag strip girl is an actual movie, but it's not this movie. No, it's a different film. Yes. And it's probably no better, but it is different. So let's give it the benefit of the doubt. It, it has different cars. Right. Fascinating, irritating. You want to go first? I'll go first. Let's see here. The fascinating for me, this is going to sound odd, but I don't care. I just, I loved how 1950s the film was. Mm. Everything about the movie was just so, you know, we're young, we're white, we're perky. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of that. Some people, and some people like Frank Gorshin, who are not that young, compensate by being way too perky. And not as white as they should be. But um, it's it, there's just something about it as a uh, time capsule. Mm, yeah. That I'm like, yeah, this, this, is, this is the 50s. This is definitely the 50s. You brought up something very interesting because this film is one of those that hilariously dates at the speed of light because it is trying so hard to capture a cultural moment in time. As you say, girls wearing their boyfriend's letter sweaters, teens in a mall shop, fast cars. Overweight guys named Yo-Yo. Exactly. Juvenile delinquency. I mean, it was all, they were trying to throw all of it into this film and make it iconic so that no matter what, you would recognize some part of the culture. And because of that, it became this museum piece almost by the time it was released a few months later. But I did have a little bit of fun watching this movie. And part of it is that it is this beetle trapped in amber. That it is so 1956. And the irritating thing, the fact that there was, in fact, no real drag strip girl. No. If you're going to call Or even a hot drag, rod girl. Or even a hot rod girl, whatever the hell the film was called. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, I, I just thought it was, you know, we got that opening scene of her driving. And then we, like you said, we never see her in a fucking car again. No. And it, it, she just became the girlfriend. Yeah, that's all she was. She was, she was hot rod help meet. Help meet. Ha ha ha. But uh, that, that, that's, that's my, that's my irritating. The, the, the titular chick was not very titular. <laughs> I know. And this was the fifties when that was important. Exactly. What fascinated me was the way the leading man steps off the moving plot five minutes in, like a guy stepping off a train at the station, then watches it chug past him for an hour before his stuntman finally hops back on the plot five minutes before the end and sorts things out. I mean, I know John Smith was in this movie. I he know, was. I know he was the male lead. He was. But he wasn't actually in this movie. I mean... The plot engine thundered by while he was inside the depot at the newsstand buying some gum and a magazine for the trip. He was singing whenever he was singing whenever he was singing. Exactly. So that was odd. I mean, MST3K films, one thing they all had in common, and I think this is something they brought up in the Amazing Colossal episode guide, what ties a lot of their films together are leading men that do nothing. Heroes that do nothing. Sometimes heroines that do nothing. But basically incompetent people who have very little effect on the plot. This is one of the most egregious because it was done deliberately. Usually it's like they just can't think of a way to have the guy do anything useful. Here he does this. No, no, I'm, I'm not going to be part of your movie. No, no, I don't want to go to the drag strip. No, I don't want to do I'm too. going to go over here. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go over here and have a conversation about why I'm so boring. That's all he does. Irritating. Now, after saying what was fascinating... It seems like, why do you even have to mention anything that's irritating? Because you just bitched for the past five minutes. But there are degrees of irritation. This is of a higher order. As you know, there's nothing I love less than bad comic relief. And with this single performance, Frank Gorshin has taken his place among the legends. 
like Rob Schneider in Judge Dredd or Sid Melton in anything. Nah. But I, I get it. This was Frank Gorshin's first film, as Jeff points out, and, and he wanted to make an impression, good or bad. But it apparently worked because 10 years later, as we said, he worked again for director Leslie H. Martinson playing the Riddler in Batman the movie. So clearly Martinson remembered him or more important, forgave him. But what really irritated me was the score. How can you have hot rods but not rock and roll? This whole movie is filled with the worst white light jazz, and it reminds me of another Mystery Science Theater episode, the one you just referenced, the giant Gila monster. The guy sings whenever he sings whenever he sings. That was also about hot rodders, and the music in that inspired a sketch about the stuff that plays on prop radios and B-movies. Our invention today looks like an ordinary prop radio, except that it's tuner only picks up channels from old sitcoms and movies. Like, for example, this is set up for the Plot Point channel. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special bulletin. The Midvale Bank has just been robbed by two armed hooligans. Hmm. And then there's the incredibly plot-specific news channel. This just in, apparently the Harlem Globetrotters are lost at sea and thought to be washed up on an uncharted desert isle. <laughs> and, of course, the generic teen dance music station. This one song has been playing on this one station for over 50 years. Yeah, this was danced to by the likes of Chip Douglas and Marsha Brady, even Jethro Bodine. What do you think, sirs? And the great thing about a meandering, colorless, mid-tempo jazz instrumental is that the music is never appropriate to anything. Whether the picture is throwing us into a full-throttle race or a quiet, touching love scene, the music does not fit the action. It's kind of amazing. And yet, even when the music is bad, it's also relentless and unavoidable. It's the kind of movie where the trombone players are listed individually in the closing credits. Ah. Now, the posters for this movie were a, a very different thing. They are nothing but promise. They promise, and I'm quoting here, chicken race, rock and roll, Youth on the Loose. Okay, there's a rear projection of a chicken race, but rock and roll was scratched before post time. Indeed. And as for Youth on the Loose, I mean, considering our youths, who range as per usual for a movie of this type from late 20s to early 40s, spend 80% of their time hobnobbing with cops or an elderly Jewish stereotype dispensing malted milks and cherry cokes, and the rest of their time on a soundstage in a fake car pretending to drive like Maggie Simpson. I don't know how loose they are. And that was pretty much it. I can't think of anything else that intrigued or annoyed me. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Did you notice how several points during the film, um, people's mouths were moving, but no dialogue was coming out? Oh, yeah. That made me wonder if there was a longer cut of this film and that they had trimmed some scenes and then they just trimmed dialogue that referred to it. There is a shorter cut of this movie that was officially released in Britain in order to get an all-ages rating. Why? uh, What they could possibly have had to cut from this movie? The driving. (laughs) Brits are upset by people who who drive. Yeah, yeah, they're driving on the wrong side of the road, so that has to go. For a film called Hot Rod Girl, I mean, I almost expected there to be no Hot Rod Girl, but I did not expect there to be almost no Hot Rods, and there is almost no Hot Rods. There's some Hot Rods shown in the background, I guess. The movie is Hot Rod Adjacent. The movie is is freeway close to Hot Rods. I wouldn't even say it's adjacent because this movie was basically just about a guy moping around and another guy be, trying to see how big an asshole he can be before the police throw him out of town. That's the plot. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's it. All right. I'm mopey. I'm a dick. Yeah. 
And then at the end, Chuck Connors will tell us that one of them is going to be all right. And the other one's going to have some legal problems. And we're not going to tell you which one. Yeah. Walk out whistling that. So so figure that out, Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Public. Because that's who this movie was made for. I have rarely sat through a film that said more vociferously, I am made for the average 1956 American. Teen, adult, small child. You'll be equally bored. But you'll recognize all the tropes. As long as you are white, you will find something to be bored by with this movie. Was there one non-white person in the entire cast? No. There was not. I didn't think so. No, 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 no. This this movie used only the whitest whites. <laughs> this whole movie was an Ajax laundry detergent commercial. Nothing, exactly. Nothing Ancient but a Chinese secret. Everybody was snowy white in this thing. So when people talk about they want their country back, that's the country they're talking about. The one that didn't actually exist in the country they lived in, but was found thriving in uh, various low-budget motion pictures productions. Oy vey. And on that note... Wait, yeah, let me ask yes. you a question. Let me ask you a question. Why yes. did, really, why did you want to do this? What was it? Because I, I, you hadn't watched it when you recommended it, right? It was just the title? It was the title. It was the fact that we hadn't done like a a drag strip style film and also because of Chuck Connors and Frank Gorshin. Okay, I, had, I felt like there had to be some other reasons because if you did it just because you liked the title and then you couldn't remember the title, that makes this movie seem even more forgettable. Yeah, what movie did we watch? I have no clue, but there was a... Wasn't there a car in it? There was a hat. Okay, all right, all right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Well, we don't know what we watched, so uh, if you guys remember, let us know, and until later, later.